You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. And I love to tell this to my students because I had no idea what I was going to do when I was growing up or when I did grow up. I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I ended up in sleep research really serendipitously. So I... um went to undergrad for neuroscience at a place called Brandeis University. And I did a little bit of clinical research and that's all, all I knew when I graduated was, oh, I'll give this a try. I'll do clinical research. So I applied to every single research assistant job in a nearby medical area. And I had an interview with a sleep lab and they were interested in the links between sleep and the immune system. And they got the job. So essentially I had no clue that studying sleep was a thing I could do. Um, But I fell in love with it because I like to sleep and, you know, everyone I know sleeps, everyone sleeps. So I loved that it wasn't a disease state. Um, and that's what really grabbed my attention. Although I tell my students that it could have been anything because I was kind of just curious in general and I could have, you know, ended up in any lab and probably would have a totally different career. So yeah, that's, I, I just sort of kept following my interests from there, but that is how I got connected with sleep in the very early days. That is Dr. Josiane Broussard an assistant professor in the Department of Health and Exercise Science and the director of the Sleep Metabolism Lab at CSU. Dr. Broussard is here today to explain the importance of sleep and why this essential behavior is key to every process in the body. How do our sleeping patterns change with age and what can you do to build a better sleep schedule? I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Thank you for joining me this morning. I'm excited to talk to you about sleep when I honestly am not usually awake at this time. (laughs) Same, Hannah. Same, same. I like woke up like three minutes ago. <laughs> Cause I was like, oh, yeah. I have a Hannah meeting. <laughs> yep. Me too. Yeah. I'm not usually functioning until closer to 10 o'clock in the morning. So mm-hmm. that's just me. <laughs> so Josie, if you had to give like a 30 second elevator pitch about what your lab studies, what mm-hmm. would that pitch be? Well, we are really interested in this concept that people who don't get enough sleep or sleep at the wrong time meaning like sleep in the day and are awake overnight, like shift workers, are at a higher risk for many, many different diseases. So we're mostly interested in metabolism, but if you do those behaviors, you're also at higher risk for di- for um, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, certain types of cancer, kidney disease. There's almost like no physiological system that's not touched by sleep and circadian rhythms and um, not impacted by it if you disrupt either of those things. Yeah. And so, of course, to study, you know, people who have interruptions in sleep, I'm a, I, you have to have a basis of what normal sleep is. Uh-huh. So I wonder if you could just tell us 
what are more typical normal sleeping behaviors kind of in young adult life and how does that change as you get into older adulthood? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so typical healthy sleep one in adults would look like uh, at least seven hours of sleep per night. And we, again, it's totally individualized. So we would tell people if they're trying to figure out how much sleep they need, they really need, we say it's after a period of time, let's say you're on vacation and you've paid back the sleep debt so that you're going to sleep and waking up without an alarm clock. That would be kind of your natural sleep need, sleep duration need. Um, And then people are, you know, early birds and night owls is actually based in biology. And so, um, you know, that also depends on your, your own natural, um, your really, it's actually genetically based when you go to, when you have a propensity to go to sleep and wake up. And going back to what you said earlier about how sleep is connected to every system of the body and every process in some way, Um, I wonder, can you tell us about if you don't get great sleep, you have said that it can show accelerated aging effects. Mm -hmm. What does that mean uh, more specifically than that? Yeah, no. So some of our research has shown that really, if you, you could be a healthy, young, um, like fit person, but if we bring you into the sleep lab and disrupt your sleep either by taking it away, so making you have shorter sleep, or mimicking sleep and aging, which we'll talk about in just a minute, but by giving you a lot of disruptions, you actually start to look pre-diabetic. So you have reduced insulin sensitivity, which is your body's ability to kind of listen to the insulin signal and take up glucose, but also you have reduced cognitive abilities, reduced reaction time, and actually super exciting unpublished data, we even see some markers of neuroinflammation and and like neural damage. So yeah, it's actually pretty scary when you think about like how much you we do it. <laughs> yeah, I know everybody tells you that sleep is important, but for me... I didn't really get the message that sleep was important until I started working with a dietician a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was one of her very big things. There was like three, four things that she always wanted you to focus on. And one of them was you had to get good sleep at night. And I, Mm -hmm. I just think for me, that was the framing it that way. I'd never really thought about how sleep would affect, you know, my eating patterns or my hunger cues or anything like that. Oh, yes. A lot of our work focuses on that. I mean, if you don't get enough sleep, your hunger hormones are dysregulated. You're more likely to be hungry. Even your meals are less likely to satisfy you, even if they're identical to when you had good night's sleep. Um, we even we did a study where we gave people insufficient sleep for about one week and then and controlled food the whole time and then sort of set them free into a Thanksgiving style buffet. And when people, the same people weren't getting enough sleep, they ate like uh, 500 calories more. Yep. You're also then less likely to go to the gym or make a healthy meal. If you think about it in the real world, separate from kind of my inpatient studies, if you didn't get a good night's sleep, you might be more likely to go through the drive-through for dinner and definitely skip the gym because you're exhausted. 
I definitely felt all of those things when I was a tired graduate student. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. Me too. So yeah, why, why is sleep so closely related to all these different processes? I, I I know you've had multiple studies about the various different negative health, health outcomes that Mm -hmm. come from a lack of sleep. Mm Why, why are there so many that are associated? You're, oh, that's, I mean, that's the question, Hannah, in the field is that nobody knows. So sleep is the only involuntary biological process about which we know so little. So we actually don't know why we sleep. I mean, obviously it's really important because we spend a huge amount of time doing it. And we know from all these studies that if we take it away, it has consequences, negative health consequences, but we still don't understand how it works, kind of what it's doing. I think, you know, I didn't mention that in kind of my path to sleep research, but that's one of the huge reasons I think I've stayed so excited and interested in it is it's like still a mystery. Yeah. So can you take us through some of the various health outcomes that you have studied in your lab and just maybe talk about a few um, that you're interested in? Ooh, cool. Okay. So probably like glucose and glucose regulation are most of my primary outcomes. So when we don't get enough sleep or sleep at the wrong time, we have much higher glucose levels. So especially in response to the first meal of the day. So we see a much bigger response to the breakfast meal. Um, That's one thing. Uh, We also see higher levels of the hunger um, peptide ghrelin. So that's another um, big focus in the lab is kind of altered hunger and appetite. Um, we see decreased uh, memory and increased reaction time, definitely decreased mood. I mean, that's like an obvious one <laughs> that everyone <laughs> asks about. Um, what else um, that we do a lot of? Well, we actually started taking tissue biopsies where we can actually see this, this big behavior like sleep actually gets all the way to the cell. So we even see cellular changes in response to some of our studies. So it's obviously pervasive. Are there any studies that, like one or two studies that you're really excited about or one or two studies that you would like to dive deeper into? Ooh, well, I would say my probably I'm most excited about a study we're doing right now on simulated shift work. So shift workers um, are at a 44% higher risk for diabetes than day workers, everything else kind of being equal. And people don't really understand why, but one of the hypotheses is that eating at night is really bad for your health. And there's been a lot of studies that show kind of later eating at night is really... um, important, you know, part determinant of health outcomes. And so we are doing a study where we bring people into the lab and we essentially give them a night shift work schedule. And in one condition, we are letting them eat normally overnight and we provide all the food and it's a very controlled food intake. And then on another condition, they come in and they eat the exact same food, but it's like organized differently throughout the day. So they're not eating during their biological night even though they're awake and sort of simulating night shift work. I would say that's my most exciting study. We have some really cool preliminary blood pressure results in that study. I didn't mention that as one of the uh, big changes with sleep and circadian disruption. Um, 
Another study is, you know, I proposed a study through the Center for Healthy Aging, and um, there's another study I'm interested kind of similar to that one, which is can we enhance circadian rhythms in people who are somehow metabolically impaired or just associated with healthy aging, there is a dampening of circadian rhythms and a reduction in sleep quality. So I'm kind of shifting away. My early work really focused on understanding the changes that are happening when we do something to sleep in healthy young people. And maybe it's because I'm no longer like a healthy young person, so my research is shifting. Um, But now I think, well, okay, we know all those things are happening, but what are we going to do about it? So my my research has taken this more um, interventional approach in the last five years, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about your study with shift workers, I have a best friend who's a nurse and has like the three days on three days off kind of schedule. And she uh-huh. said over and over that that first day when her, her shift is up and it's just a day to herself, all she does is sleep. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I she bet. says, I'm dead and I'm not even functioning because of that. And so mm-hmm. I just going back to the study that you were talking about, like she's a shift worker that she has to keep this schedule. So what can she do about it when she knows her sleep is getting disrupted? Exactly. When it's unavoidable. And yeah, exactly right. And of the thousands and thousands of clinical trials, like a tiny percentage are focused on shift workers. And someone recently just told me that like two are actually intervention studies. So I think that's a really important um, focus that needs to be made. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about bringing them into a lab. So that's, Mm -hmm. I feel like an interesting part of this conversation is what is your sleep lab like? And what is that experience like for somebody who walks in to volunteer for one of your studies? Oh, that's such a good question because Hannah, my sleep lab is beautiful. I'll tell you right now. And anyone that wants to have a tour, I welcome people to reach out because I love showing off the sleep lab. It was built by my department, the health and exercise uh, department, and it's just beautiful. So I it's um, it's organized based on all the sleep labs I've ever worked in. So I have probably, if I, you know if I went and counted, maybe worked in five sleep labs over the course of my career. And so I've been able to build the sleep lab at CSU by collecting all the best parts of those labs. So we have a control room where we can monitor the participants that come in the lab. So we have computers and videos and light control and um sleep equipment and a microphone. And then we you walk through what's called an antechamber, which is kind of a buffer room between the control room and then two what we call sleep suites, where people can live in the lab for any amount of time. And they are designed to be much more comfortable and homey than a typical sleep lab. Most sleep labs are housed within kind of a very clinical hospital setting. They're often on hospital floors um, in clinical research centers. So we really wanted to say, you know, let's make this more like a hotel. Let's make this a little bit more like a dorm room. So we can't have windows because that's a really important part of sleep and circadian research is we can't have light 
coming in that's not controlled by us. Um, but we try to otherwise make it extremely comfortable and homey. So we have um, fake plants and decorations, um, but we still have all the clinical capabilities. So it's a it's a hospital bed in each room that can kind of be raised and lowered. And um, probably the most useful part of the room from a research standpoint is we have a small hole in the wall in both rooms that actually allow us to connect the participant who we usually have an IV in place so that we can take blood and we can actually connect that to a 12 foot long IV line that we can run through this specially designed wall hole and we can sample blood from that antechamber outside. So we can actually take blood while people are sleeping and not disturb sleep, which is obviously really important because we want to know, you know, what's happening in a healthy system when we're not disturbing sleep so that we can then compare that when we are. So that's the sleep lab. That's really cool. Yeah. It sounds that at least the blood portion part of it sounds very futuristic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're very that's proud very of it. That's very cool. Nice. And I just imagine for a volunteer coming in that it's nice to be in a homey environment because of what you yes. said. Like when I picture a sleep lab, I don't picture something that's homey and comfortable. Yes, exactly. And in those, in a lot of my prior work, you know, people come in and there, there's a, there's a lot of stress involved with coming in to stay in the hospital in anyone, but also, especially if you're actually a healthy young person and you don't really have any medical need, you know, to be there, you're looking around at all these lights and nurses run sprinting past your room and you're thinking, what have I got myself into? So yeah, and actually it can disrupt sleep a lot in the night because codes are often called and there's nothing obviously we can do about that. It's a hospital. So, yes, we tried to make it very um a little bit lower stress environment. I've always wondered that about sleep studies. I feel like the sleep I would get in a lab would not be as accurate with the sleep I get at home because it's a different environment. Yeah, and that's true no matter where you are. It, it's actually a real phenomenon. People think, oh, I just I didn't sleep that well, but it must have just been, in, quote, in my head. But there's a thing called the first night effect, and it's a well-described phenomenon in sleep research where the first night you're in a new environment, you don't sleep as well. And it's actually based in evolution. Um, the, the people that have gone, you know, and done this actual research, they can show using um, EEG that half of your brain stays is awake. It's called night watch. It's so cool. And basically it's a protective mechanism. Half of your brain is staying awake to kind of keep an eye on this new environment and see, you know, is it safe? So you actually are sleeping differently in a new environment. That would describe the feeling of like when you've woken up and you feel, you know, you've slept, but you feel yes. like you were alert the whole time you were sleeping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the feeling. Mm -hmm. Also, that brings up a good point of I think it's so fascinating to think about sleep in evolutionary terms. Yes. Like, like if this is a conserved process that we have over hundreds and thousands of years, and that dictates that it's very important for some reason, we don't yes. totally know why, but that means it has to be important if it's still sticking around. That's exactly right, Hannah. That's so true. And not, not even just for us and species closely related, but sleep is really ancient because you can even see it and describe it in organisms that don't even have a brain or a centralized nervous system. So sleep actually evolved 
pre-brain, which is crazy to think about. So you're totally right. Like I love thinking about sleep in that way. Um, And I always encourage my students also to kind of think, well, why is this happening? Okay, like what benefit would it have served when we were, you know, cave people? (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so going back to the topic of sleep and aging, I know at least from my mom or my grandparents, people I have in my life that as you get older, sleep becomes a little bit more challenging. It either to get a consistent amount of sleep or to sleep for like the same duration all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, well, first off, if you could tell us a little bit about that specifically, Mm -hmm. or how do you get around that as an older Mm -hmm. person or somebody who has constantly disrupted sleep? Like what are some tips for building a better sleep schedule? There's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> right. I mean, seriously, my my life's goal is like to help, try to help my mom sleep better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's it's my mom is always like, you know, you did all, you do all this research, but like, how do I sleep better? I'm like, oh, my gosh. So but you're right. I mean, healthy, normal aging is associated with a lot of changes to sleep architecture. Um, one of the biggest is that the quality goes down because we lose a lot or most of the deepest stages of sleep. So what we call slow wave sleep, um, it's the stage that's hardest to wake people up from. Um, It's considered the most physically restorative stage of sleep. And it's really clear around like early middle age. I don't even know this. Actually, it's around 35, which I don't think people even call middle age anymore. But basically at 30, around the mid thirties, we start to see a huge drop off in slow wave sleep. It's just part of um, healthy aging. And so that's where you get, like you mentioned, kind of that lighter sleep, um, a little bit more disrupted. And it's disrupted because the sleep is so much lighter. So you can be disrupted so much easier. Um, You know, I talked to a a lot of moms in my research and they're like, I never slept well again after having kids. Um, and so, you know, that's been my personal experience as well. So I definitely, um, strikes the chord there. So what else you asked? Um, usually there's also a decrease in quantity, as you mentioned. Um, and there can be a natural circadian shift that happens with aging where people become early birds. Um, so that's something, you know, if you're, not expecting and you're kind of not um, allowing yourself to sleep at that new schedule, that can also interfere because, you know, if you're trying to keep your old schedule, but your body wants to go to sleep sooner, that can also contribute to not getting enough sleep because you're naturally waking up earlier. Um, So that can be, you know, one tip is to try to listen to your body. And if you are having that shift to an earlier time, kind of like lean into that and, you know, test that out. It could that be your new schedule rather than trying to stick to, you know, if you always went to bed and you slept from midnight to eight, but all of a sudden your body wants to wake up at five, six, well, you know, experiment with going to sleep earlier. And maybe that can be, um, one, one way you, you get some of your sleep back. I like that tip. I definitely like that tip. Is there anything around, routines you can have closer to bedtime or things you can do to just relax your brain so maybe you fall asleep more easily? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely there's all the tips, like the keeping your room, you know, at a cool temperature, keeping the room super dark, not turning the lights on super bright in the evening. That's something that I follow pretty strictly. Um, but yes, anything that you can think of to kind of prepare your house and your body for sleep um, will help. Um, we usually say avoiding exercise too close to bedtime. Evening is probably okay, but you want to kind of keep it away from the couple of hours right before bed because it can raise your core body temperature, which you actually want to be dropping in the evening and the night as you're going to sleep. Um, and that can help. Um, avoiding caffeine in the afternoon, that's a big one that kind of everybody knows. And all of these tips, if you Google, you know, sleep tips, or you can find them on the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and also the Sleep Research Society websites. So they can give you a little bit more information. Nice. I like all of those. I follow most of those these days. It's funny when you say avoid exercise. I think back to my college days and how if I didn't get to the gym during my day, I would go at 9 p.m. Oh my goodness. Yep. <laughs> yeah, totally. I would. Because because when I was in school, exercising was a like stress relieving mechanism for me. Uh -huh. And if I didn't get it, I felt like I was lost and I needed to get it in. And now, of course, I look back on all of that time and I'm just like, what were you doing to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> but that was probably really important for you then. So, you know, you had to kind of make that choice. It makes sense. Yeah. And the exercise component, I'm interested in, in getting deeper into that too, because you are in a health and exercise science department. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you, you yourself being a sleep researcher in an exercise department, you have what you should think should be the guidelines for how to do exercise so that it doesn't affect sleep or how to do exercise to support healthy behaviors and good sleep. So mm -hmm. what would that advice be? That's a good one because there is a whole new field regarding the timing of exercise. And the jury is still out as far as what that would be and what that would look like in people with who are healthy versus people with metabolic impairments. And there's some evidence that exercise can actually be used as a tool to manipulate your circadian rhythm. So I think mostly I'm rambling because I have no answer for you, but except to say that we have a ton of cool research going on by a lot of my colleagues to ask whether there is an important timing piece to exercise. Um, so really, I think it's more right now, it's probably very individualized and kind of when you can get it in. I think the big comment there I have to say is my, I worry that people are going to hear that, oh, there's this right time to exercise, but I can't do exercise at that time, so I'm not going to do it at all. Well, no. Exercise is good whenever you can do it, um, but there might be times that it would be most beneficial or maybe feel the best. Like I, I'm trying to think like, yeah, I, I'm not like a morning exerciser. I mean, we talked about this when we first hopped on. I'm not a morning person at all, so I would be way happier exercising in the middle of the day. Um, but then there's a people who are, you know, go to the gym at 6.30 p.m. and that's, you know, their jam and they love it. So I think any exercise, we have to make sure that we're, that's the messaging, that any exercise is really good and ideal. Um, but maybe we can use the timing to actually help with other things. Um, maybe timed exercise can help with certain types of hunger, um, different circadian outcomes, different things like that. 
It's so fascinating because it, I can imagine it's all so complicated to study <laughs> and yeah. all these different biological processes that are shifting and increasing and de- decreasing when you're trying to decide when is the best time to exercise mm-hmm. or how, how much should we be sleeping? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's if you take a fasting blood sample, for example, and you get you get one static number, right, for anything you could think to measure or assay. But every single one of those things has a, a rhythm going on. So it, it, exactly what you said, that becomes so difficult then because you, once you are a sleep researcher, you kind of know the rhythms of all these things. And you know that those things exist. You realize like all of, you know, the amount of things you have to think about to run your studies and to plan your studies. And we have these really cool endocrine chapters that we write that have, you know, like 10 panels of graphs that are the 24-hour profile of hormones and how different they are at different times of the day. And, you know, when one is kind of more in its trough, one is peaking. Um, I mean, it's much, it's so dynamic that you're, you're so right. There's a lot, there's a lot to think about. Yeah, there's a lot to consider. So so that actually brings me to this last question that is our new season three standing question. When you're talking about all the things that you have to think about when you're designing a study, what would you say is a major challenge in your field or a hurdle that must be overcome in order to, you know, realize real changes in health span or improvements in healthy aging? It's a big question, but you're in a sleep field. So I wonder how your answer is different. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the challenge, I guess I would say right now in our field is shifting from we know the consequences to what are we going to do about it? Right. I think that's the next step for our field to kind of push the edge forward because we we know now there's all these impairments. We've really gone deep into some of these highly controlled studies, but moving out into the real world so we can actually make changes and start to address the the sleep and circadian challenges. I think that's the really big next step for, for us. Yeah. For, for my lab, for sure. Yeah. So if we had to like walk away from this podcast with one take home message that you would like a listener to have, since we know that sleep is connected to all of these different health outcomes, what would that, what would the cautionary tale be? Or what would, what would the takeaway be? The takeaway one liner is that sleep is as important as diet and exercise and might be easier. Right. And I say might, because I used to say and easier, but as as I and everyone I know ages, they say, you know, it's actually not so easy. And so I, I kind of, you know, made a, an adjustment to that saying. But that, that's, it was a sleep society, um, sleep research society slogan from a few years ago. But I love it because sleep really is like the third pillar of health. If you think about sleep, diet, and exercise, um, they all kind of c- communicate and kind of influence each other. Like in the very beginning, we said, if you don't get enough sleep, you're probably less likely to eat healthy or cook, less likely to go to the gym. And so I think sleep has to be part of that. And it has to be part of the health conversation with your primary care physician and really considered not like a luxury, right? Like, a, but a really important determinant of health. So 
Before we close, Josie, I have two fun questions. One's a comment. One's a fun question for you. Um, So I was talking to my boyfriend about this topic and how I was going to be recording this podcast. And he likes to pose existential questions. He's a deep thinker. (laughs) And so he posed this question. And there's an obvious answer to this question. But I wonder, there's also a subjective answer to this question. So so the riddle, the riddle, let me make sure I get this right in my head. Um, say, say there's like a 77 year old man and he sleeps for like six hours a a night. Okay. And he lives until he's 77. But then there's like a 70 year old man Mm -hmm. who, who, who sleeps only for like four hours a night Mm -hmm. who technically lived longer, who technically had more life. Oh my gosh. This is so (laughs) funny because I, I think some, when I was a grad student, I used to think things like this, like, is is life based on waking hours <laughs> and you use them up, you know? So, I mean, it, so I think it's a super cool debate, right? Because are you, like, quote, unquote, living more, um, you know, because you're awake? So I would guess I, the debate I would have with your boyfriend, so we should have him on next time as, a, <laughs> like, your co-host, is well what's the yes. quality of life for someone that is awake for and sleeping only 4 hours a night so it if all else be if there were no consequences of sleep loss and it was based like life was based on waking hours then sure you could kind of decide but are you you know living it up all all of 20 hours of that time or are you exhausted a lot of that time are you not doing fun things because you know that sleep schedule is kind of interfering so that's the reverse existential question I would ask back (laughs) that was that was kind of where our conversation went except I was posing that the quality of life of the 77 year old like yeah technically he lived longer but what if he was sick and like spent Mm -hmm. his last five years like in a hospital bed or like something like that right we need technically details about these hypothetical people But yeah, totally. where's the yes. data? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you're right. Like the health span versus lifespan obviously is a big, big um, topic. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Okay. So that was my fun riddle question. And then mm-hmm. I just wanted to just make a comment about how I love your email signature about <gasps> you. how you say, yeah, you say something like, you know, I'm a sleep researcher. I don't keep the same hours as you, obviously. So don't feel the need to respond to me or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I yeah. saw somebody left something kind of like that. It wasn't it wasn't a sleep researcher, but it was like a very clear kind of don't feel obligated. I have this like kind of random schedule. Then I thought, yeah, I am a sleep researcher. I might be, you know, helping my students in the middle of the night, which is I'll say right now if they're listening, that's rare. So I don't want to say that I'm doing a lot of night work anymore. <laughs> they're listening like, <laughs> okay, Josie, yeah, right. Um, but but I might be, you know, traveling at a conference and, you know, in a different time zone. So yes, I, I like having that there so that nobody feels obligated to <laughs> write me back. Or I just, I do what, what I kind of suggested in the early days to kind of listen to how my body feels. And I might, because I am a night owl, I do actually end up um, doing a lot of work at night. So <laughs> but I don't recommend yeah. it for all. <laughs> no, no. But I, what I like about that is just 
like the, it takes the pressure off to kind of respond to things quickly when mm-hmm. like respond to it when it works for you, when yeah. the, it's in your schedule. I exactly. love that. Yeah. Come on. Let's enjoy life. Like relax people. Well, Josie, thank you so much. This was a fun conversation. I had yeah, really a lot too. of fun talking to you about this subject. And so, um, yeah, I just appreciate all your knowledge that you brought to the table today. And I feel like I understand sleep better now because of it. So Great. thank you. Great. Well, come over sometime. We'll give you a tour. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.